Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Almost live from the trenches of New York City, here are your middle aged warriors, Chris Samino and Rick Summers. And hello again, friends. Welcome to our podcast. We are known as the Middle Age Warriors right here on the Believe Podcast Network. I'm Chris Savino. I'm Rick Summers. And while on one hand, it feels like time is standing still. Yeah, well, somehow in the last few days of June, it's amazing that we've come this far. And yet you're right. Life doesn't seem to have been moving anywhere. You know, it's funny. Uh, my wife, Valerie, always says to me, you know, once July 4th hits, the year is pretty much over. <laughs> oh, really? And that's and that's a phenomenon, I think, of middle age and maybe old age. But when you're young, summer seems like it's interminable. Well, I mean, I, would, I wouldn't call the, to me, the 4th of July is kind of either the kickoff or where summer hits its stride. I always felt like Labor Day it was like, oh, it's Labor Day. Now, boom, beaches are closing. Summer is done. School is coming back. That was really the real cold smack in the face. But I think Valerie's a little uh, glass half empty with that July 4th. <laughs> Next time I, I see her, I'm going to ask her about that one. I will tell you this. I have a theory that when you think about how many summer weekends there really are, uh, whether it's Memorial Day to Labor Day or July 4th to Labor Day, when you get older, as we are, middle age, every weekend is planned out in advance. Unlike when you're a kid. That's true. You have no clue what the weekend's going to hold. But when you're an adult, because everything is so precise, you have to plan. All right, yeah. next weekend we have John's wedding. Right. The following weekend we have uh, Kaylee's bat mitzvah. Then, you know, and life is so planned out. And that's why I feel like summer goes warp speed. Well, that, that is true, though, because if you do have a large family and a large circle of friends, there always seems to be some organized, invitationalized event that you have to attend almost every weekend. So maybe when we get finally, Rick, on the other side of this middle age thing, uh, the weekends will loosen up for us again like we were in teenagers. And we can, we can do whatever we want with our canes and we can, you know, go yell at people to get off our lawn. It's going to be great. <laughs> hey, you kids, get off my lawn. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But uh, anyway, so we're heading into show 16. This is episode wow. 16. Wow. Yeah, Sweet 16. Mm-hmm. How about that? Yeah. Yeah, we've had some really great guests. And I'm, I'm so appreciative of everybody that's, that's carved out time to A, be our guest and talk with us, but also to everybody who's taken the time to seek us out and find us on the Believe Podcast Network, listen to the show, send an occasional email. And uh, we really want to get you as a, a bystander, a listener, a viewer, whatever it is you're doing, more involved. Yeah, I think uh, a little feedback back and forth and creating conversations and anybody out there listening has some ideas or comments about the challenges of middle age or something relating to it in some shape or form, please pass that along to us and uh, we'll try to you know, get a show going. If you have any idea uh, for guests that you might want, uh, please pass that along. We'll obviously do our best to get to it. And on today's show... Well, if laughter is the best medicine, our guest today should uh, probably have a PhD in comedy. He's a New York lifer, born in Brooklyn many, many years ago. So he's, he's part of the brethren here of our middle-aged warriors. He's led the charge in doing stand-up comedy at some of the world's most renowned comedy stages. 
and uh, he's just a, a super guy. I'm glad you're going to get a chance to meet him. Yeah, I'm sure, uh, you know, Carlin, Reiser, Seinfeld, he knows where all the bodies are buried, right? Yes, he does. <laughs> and he's a distinguished member of the Friars Club here in New York City. Oh, that's comedy royalty. Come on. Yes, it is. And you haven't lived until you've gone to this Sunday brunch at the Friars Club <laughs> with our guest. He'll tell you more we'll talk about, about that. that. The other thing I, I noticed about him, and I'm and I'm sorry, I, uh, because he's also a lifelong Mets and Jets fan, and he's paid his <laughs> like most of us have. <laughs> yeah, so he's he's paid his he's paid his price. He served his penance, and that makes him a super qualified guest on our show today. And I'm going to let Chris introduce my friend, but I'll let you go. Well, he's a host, a teacher, currently part of a team that tours and promotes getting along through adversity in his uh, Stand Up for Peace show. It's Scott Blankman. And Scott, man, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate well, it. Chris and Rick, already I'm so thrilled to be here. Chris, you said that uh, if laughter is the best medicine, I should have a PhD. Uh, my late parents would have loved to have heard that because I was already <laughs> a doctor. So I'm glad that now. I think technically you just saying I have a PhD. I think I have one and I appreciate it. And you're right. Uh, you know, they always say the best training for comedy is to have some pain. And being a Mets and Jets fan, I think, has given me uh, all I need. All Absolutely. You could, you could teach a course on that, probably. Yeah. Um, Scott, uh, in, in the sense of true disclosure, I've known Scott for 20 years now. And he taught me stand-up comedy at the new school here in New York when I went on a dare many years ago when Valerie said to me, you should do stand-up. And I was like, you think so? And I thought I was trying to impress her. So why not? Were you, so drinking, took, that, were you drinking that night? Is that what happened? <laughs> it should have been. So I took Scott's course at the new school and, and we've been friends on and off from, from many a moon since then. So, well, I, I've, it was great to work with Rick Van and, and so many other ventures that, shows that you've produced and, and Valerie produced and it's it's a pleasure and I would say that the new school I don't do it there anymore I do teach uh privately I did something at the Scarsdale Adult School uh, uh recently online too which is an interesting thing as you guys are doing we're adapting to I've done comedy shows two of them on zoom I've done classes so it's a new world that hopefully we don't have to continue uh, it'll change back to live you know what that leaves an open door for the first question that I wanted to ask and that is Scott you've been doing comedy for many many years how hard is it to be funny when life is not funny or is life always funny I think you always have to find that I think more than ever uh you know the the, the biggest thing now is we, comedians we can't do what we do in the venues we normally do it but uh, I've done two things. One, I have done a couple of Zoom shows. But, you know, and this show is about, you know, we're, yeah, we're middle-aged warriors. And at different points in your life, you make decisions. And you could either say, go oh, we're in a pandemic or this. Let's just curl up in a ball. And I've, I've done that on some days. But you could also, I've started doing something on March 31st. Um, for years, I've thought, I'm going to do a podcast. And uh, I have a longtime friend, Tom Saunders. We've known each other from the beginning when we started doing comedy. and. 1979, I, I hate to say it. Uh, and we joke at the show, the show is 40 years in the making because we're both procrastinators. But, uh, you know, this is what we did. And, and talk about, it's called Getting Through This with Tom and Scott. But literally, we started the show to get through it. I mean, literally back, as you guys know, I've listened to your shows from right around the time that the lockdown started. It's an uh, unprecedented time. And it really helped. Every day. We do this every single day of the show. I just finished recording now. And it's... 
you know, we want listeners to love it, but it makes us laugh. And that's what we need. And some comedians now, and I don't begrudge them that, but they're gotten a lot more serious. And I do a lot of political comedy. Obviously, I base my comedy on serious things, but we always need to find the laughter. And people in worse situations have found that. And that's how you get through every day. And that's what you need to do. Yeah, well, you know, with that in mind, so I see they, I was doing a little research, they refer to you as the gentleman comic. So as a gentleman comic, are there social topics that you won't touch in your act? For example, the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter or just dealing with COVID right now. How do you dance around those? What do you do with that? Well, I think you're exactly right. You have to dance around it. There's nothing, if you break it down, there's nothing funny specifically about a disease, a pandemic, or about systemic racism, or or any of those things. It's this heavy stuff. But uh, and again, I'm not saying uh, you know I will weigh on on everything. But I think there's always press coverage, or there's always, especially during this time, I've, in the podcast, especially we talk about what it's like living every day, and I go on and on about how thrilled I am to get delivery from Peapot or Amazon Fresh, or whatever it is. Things that would sound mundane, and why would you bring it up in February? Now it's fascinating. So I, I think there's always a way to, to do it. And you know, we're living through these times, and, and you can't just uh, ignore it. But I will just throw in quickly one other thing that I do that does give me the chance to talk seriously is I've been doing a political commentator. I do, you know, every week now I've been a liberal commentator on Newsmax, which is a conservative news channel. And every week I get to go on, which I don't need coffee anymore because I get my heart rate up. <laughs> uh, and uh, there's some of them been heated, but it's fascinating to be behind the scenes in a world that I'm not that familiar with. And I, it's a different skill. You know, I'm not being funny, uh, but I think even comedians being serious, we approach it uh, in a certain way. So I do get to talk about these issues in, in a way that is serious. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. Uh, it's like putting a comedy set together only without laughs and mm. you try to figure out your arguments when people are cutting you off. So it's a, it's a different kind of a skill, but I'm thankful to get the chance to do that too. Scott, are stand-up comedians born or is it something you can actually learn? Well, you know, people say like with teaching a stand-up comedy workshop, can you uh, teach someone to be a comedian or teach someone to be funny? I don't look at it that way. I think all of us have something within us that at the very least we can maybe get up for five minutes and say some funny things. I'm certainly not saying I'll make you into a comedian. That's, that's something different. But I believe that everybody has that inside them. And that's what I do in the class. And whether people want to go on to something or not, we all have that. And especially in these times, it's important to tap into that uh, and say, yeah, this, this is what makes me laugh or this is funny or I'm going to look at this situation in a funny way, you know. In terms of the craft itself for you, what is the process like? I mean, I've, I've heard many comics over the years talk about, I mean, painstakingly building and honing a routine, tweaking jokes literally just by syllables or just a second weight, things of that nature. Do you act more spontaneously on stage or are you a reactor or do you really have something, uh, you know, that's really a solid, solid set that you work with over time? I'm somewhere in the middle. I mean, obviously, to uh, you know, I, Jerry Seinfeld was the MC when I passed auditions at the comic strip, and and I've gotten to see him over the years. And he, I would say, is the classic example of such a uh, well, br you know, brilliantly funny, but really just as you say, hones every syllable, every word. I think more. I, I focus on the idea and the premise, and I'll have something to go with, and then I like to write on stage 
So I kind of add to it. And um, so Robert Klein is a comedian that uh, I always kind of is a role model. And, and uh, so uh, I, you have to have a basis for what you're going to say, but I do like to kind of go off from there. So every show is a little different and I don't say everything exactly the same way. That's just how I work. So take me back, take us back to little Scotty Blakeman growing up on the streets of Brooklyn. And what, I mean, I know what I listened to is I, I loved Cosby when I was, when I was a kid growing up, he used to make me laugh. I love Bob Newhart. Who were, who were the first people that influenced you and made you say, you know what, I want to do this? Well, as you know, I mentioned it was Robert Klein who, uh, and I remember his album, Child of the 50s. And I remember seeing him at the Schaefer Music Festival, which later became the Dr. Pepper Music Festival in Central Park at Walman Rink. I think the most expensive ticket was like $3. And you <laughs> saw great comedians and, and, and rock bands and, and everybody. But I saw Robert Klein there. I had the amazing privilege of seeing George Carlin at the bitter end, right when he made the transition from being a, a slick Vegas comedian to being George Carlin, the one we know. And it was incredible. To this day, it was like two hours and it was, breathtaking. I saw Steve Martin early on uh, at the Troubadour in LA. I saw him at Northwestern where I went. He played a little cafe called Amazing Grace. And I, and you guys will appreciate this. I was worked for the radio station and I interviewed him backstage. And of course, I, my Panasonic cassette player broke, wasn't working and he knew it. <laughs> I just kept the interview going. And uh, so, yeah, those are inspirations. I think the second time I ever did stand up was at Northwestern and I literally, I think I just did Steve Martin. I think I just probably imitated <laughs> uh, But Robert Klein certainly has always remained that. And the great thing is, and, and for both of you guys too, any guy views idolize who you've gotten to work with and uh, over the years, which I'm sure has happened, is such a thrill. And I had that with Robert Klein. I got to do his show, Robert Klein Time on USA Network. I've gotten to open for him many times in theaters and for his HBO specials. And I've gotten to know him. And uh, so that's really been a thrill when somebody is a kid in Brooklyn and, oh, I'd like to be like Robert Klein. And then you get to, he thinks you're funny. So that's really, to me, the ultimate when someone you respect thinks that, that way of you. Well, talking about that, and let's take it back another step in terms of, because as far as I'm concerned, comedy and stand-up comedy, that's entertainment suicide. Now, my daughter is trying to do this and I don't want to discourage her, but it, to me, is the most difficult type of performing because there's very little gray area in response. You're an actor. You know, wait, I want to jump in for one sec because when I started to do stand-up comedy, I used to describe it as it's like being circumcised when you're 21. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can imagine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but and, and to that point, did you? What was the trigger? Truly, not just saying, "Oh, I saw a comic and I, I, I want to be like that." Because we talked a little bit before the show that you had aspirations even of being a sportscaster or things of that nature. Sure. What really made that push? Because there's got to be that point, that tipping point that goes, I'm going on stage. I'm going to do this. I'm, going, I'm taking this on. When did that yeah. happen? Well, especially when I started, uh, it wasn't now. You go to a diner when we used to go to diners and, yeah. and the next booth. Yeah, my friend's a comedian. He's a comedian. I'm a comedian. It was very rare then. And for me, my process was when I was 19, uh, I... Um, uh, lived well even now uh, where I'm lived right across the bay in Sheep's Bay was a place called Pips. Ah. It really was one of the first mm -hmm. comedy clubs. I mean, it was really the improv and Pips basically. And incredible guy George Schultz, who with his sons ran the place. 
and David Brenner, Richard Belzer, everybody started there. And that was one of the few plays. That was before it predated Catch Rising Star, a comic strip. It was around the same time as the improv. And they would have music acts too, like folk acts and comedians. So I did an open mic and I'll, I know exactly when it was and I'm telling you how old I am, but in 1974, the Watergate hearings that summer, I was uh, home from college and I would watch the hearings. And then I did an open mic. And I remember one of my first jokes was uh, the Watergate squares instead of the Hollywood squares. And I was like, I'll go with Richard Nixon to obstruct. <laughs> so, you know, which by the way, you can apply now. You can just change the name Absolutely. of the president. But anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, that was how it began and it went well. Uh, it went great. And the George Schultz invited me back. And the interesting thing is that was spontaneous. I wasn't thinking I'm a comedian. My friends were there, I was loose. It took me many, many shows after that to get back to that loose comedian because the, the next time I was at Pips was Thanksgiving weekend. Came home to school. I got paid $35 for the weekend. Oh. I uh, sound like I'm 90. And that was a lot of money in those Big days. Bucks, that's right. <laughs> for me, it was a lot of money. It was not, today would be a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, and that was rough. I mean, because then it was like, I'm reading it. I didn't know what it was. It, you know, some of it went well, some of it didn't. So it was, a, it was a, I always tell my students, you know, try to just be natural and be yourself. And uh, uh, but, so that was really the, the process to start. And then, but then when I was in college, I wasn't thinking this is what I was going to do. And when I got out, um, I was a copywriter and, uh, but, but I did, but the sports thing has always been a constant in my life. I'm not one of those guys who hangs out and I'm just like arguing statistics or who was better, but I go back to, you know, I grew up in, in four blocks, five blocks away from Marv Albert, his whole family. And, wow. and as you guys know, uh, Alfred Tig. It was the family name. And, and Marv's parents were the sweetest people, uh, Max and Alita Alfredtig. And Max Alfredtig had a grocery store in Brighton Beach in Brooklyn called Alfredtig's for quality. I always remembered that. <laughs> and talk about who I idolized first. It was Marv Albert and that family. And uh, one night I got to go over to the house and Steve Albert and Alan, who are great broadcasters in their own right, uh, knew them. And, and uh, I just, I got to visit WHN when I was in high school. Wow. And I still have stationary, gold embossed stationary when Marv was at WHN. And he took me, I think as he described it, the, the nickel tour or whatever it was. And I, I don't think I could, I could speak, you know. And because uh, I remember hearing Marv when he was doing radio when I was like 10 years old. And it was for a, a college, I think. It was, I vaguely remember Loyola versus some school. So that was what I wanted to be initially. And I still had these tapes of me turning the sound off on the TV. I would do my own play-by-play. -play. I still have the cassettes. If you ever want to break some glass, hearing my voice then, with my, my high-pitched Brooklyn accent, but he shoots and he scores! That could be any of us. Yeah, and I, and I had this makeshift mic with uh, masking tape and, you know, the whole thing. And so that's what I wanted to be. And I would listen to, I would, late at night, I would try to get like a, the Montreal or the Toronto station here, Foster Hewitt, Hockey Night in Canada. Wow. And so that really just, I, again, I'm not, I'm never a great athlete. I, I mean, I like playing sports and, uh, you know, but that really was always with me and, um, and admiring, you know, the great sports guys and Marv and, uh, uh, you know, all of them. And I always have a special place for Len Berman and, and the people mm -hmm. you with Chris over, yeah. you know, in NBC. So to this day, I always uh, have a great soft spot for that. It never was something that I got to do, but, uh, 
that was something that people I idolized too. Yeah, I think all three of us actually at some point in our lives wish we could have done that. I Rick could, can talk a little bit about his his sort of brush with that uh, as a PA announcer. But a question I wanted to ask in terms of the performing side of this: What was the worst experience you ever had on stage? Well, it's interesting because I know that <laughs> yeah, it is. It's it's more of an interesting question than what was the best. But, but uh, and I just I don't know that you know. If maybe the worst one I blocked out of my mind, so I can't say, I can't, I honestly can't pinpoint. And it's the same way I can't say what was the best. I mean, I'm thankful for the great experiences. The bad ones, um, I don't know. I, I you know, it's, honestly, all the bad ones I could laugh at now. I don't think there was anything. I mean, look, anytime you bomb, obviously, or you're not getting laughs, it's, it's uncomfortable. Um, yeah, I mean, but I think I, I can remember following Eddie Murphy in his heyday at the comic strip. Wow. Uh, when he just hit was SNL and everything. And, and, you know, I knew Eddie then, and it was exciting to be around it. Uh, but I remember once I went on after him and not only did I bomb, nobody was even facing the stage yeah. was, to them. The show was over. So, uh, but you know, it's, it's, it's very hard to say. I mean, it, look, it hurts. There's no point that you get to if whenever this thing is over where, I mean, I know comics are doing performing in parking lots and doing drive-in stuff, but, uh, it never stops hurting if you don't get the laughs. I mean, you can't, you're never like, oh, I'm fine with it. So, it, it, but you try to get over it and go, I'll try to, I'm going to do it again soon and hopefully it'll go better. So can't think of one in particular, but there's certainly been, in fact, I'll just quickly say when I did my Zoom show uh, for JCC and Oceanside, Long Island, and I'm looking at these squares and they're silent, by the way. It's not like, where we could hear free, they, everyone's mic is turned off. So it's silence and you don't hear the laughter. And I joked, I said, yeah, I did the JCC a year ago and I also couldn't hear the laughter and I was there, you no. know, but uh, <laughs> so, uh, that's why these Zoom shows are very hard because you're not hearing it uh, yeah. for the most part, so, yeah, you know. That, that was exactly what I was going to ask in, in the time we're in, trying to still perform to some extent and doing it without having that live audience and that instantaneous reaction. I mean, I even know from, I'd be doing the weather in a studio with maybe two or three other people. I say something funny. It's basically, you're not really going to hear, you may hear a snicker from somebody off camera. If I go to speak in front of an audience somewhere and I say something funny and you, you get that collective laughter, I have to tell you for me, that was a great rush. And I'm not a comedian. Uh, that's what you feed off of. So how do you personally approach this or, or you just, are you trying to shy away from it because you're not getting the feedback and doing it via zoom or without an audience? Yeah, I mean, I have it. If people had asked me to do more Zooms, I would. I mean, one was I got hired for it, which was great. And it, uh, you know, it's challenging. I mean, you see people smiling and you could, you know, but it's uh, certainly not easy. And then I did do it for my class show for the Scarsdale Adult School. And they did great. And I give them so much credit. Uh, and uh, it's difficult. And thankfully, you know, this isn't going to be the new normal. I mean, there will be a time when, in, in whenever it is, and I, we should do it as deliberately as possible um, when we'll be in front of audiences again and people are finding ways to do it. And I will say, going back to the podcast thing, I have an audience when I do this with my friend and we go back and forth and make each other laugh. So in a sense, I'm getting around that restriction mm -hmm. limitation now by having that feedback. But there's nothing like, as you say, Chris, getting up in front of an audience live and hearing the laughter. And hopefully that'll be able to happen again fairly soon. You know, something I just draw... Uh, Drew, an interesting analogy between you and a guest that we had on a couple of weeks ago by the name of John Franco. 
I well, think this well, is a I'm, great I'm comparison. And I think that this is a wonderful, wonderful comparison because we were talking about what it's like to bomb as a comedian. Uh, and we asked you what your worst experience was. I think you kind of have the backbone of being a relief pitcher where if you come in and you've got your good stuff, shut them up and shut them down. If you don't have your stuff and you see the manager looking at you and walking out to the mound to give you the hook, it's kind of like you just have to leave it on the mound and just move forward and just can't wait to get back out there again. Yeah, well, I think there is, I mean, I'm <laughs> flattering myself, but to me, any comparison with someone as great as John Franco, but there is that, I always wonder how do relief pitchers get past and Franco was so brilliant that it didn't happen a lot with him. But there are guys in the more current days where, you know, they – and guys who were great, and then they have a string. You look at uh, Diaz, who's a great great pitcher, and he's had troubles, and hopefully he'll bounce back. It's a mind thing. It really – that's an important part of comedy. So much of it is your mindset. And, you know, people – material is important. Obviously, delivery is important. But you have to really – you know, it's it's kind of, it's a competition with yourself and you really got to gut the, not every crowd's going to be with you and you really have to go, all right, I'm going to do this and uh, I'm going to make this happen somehow. And I think your attitude and your approach and like, all right, last night didn't work out, so, but I'm going to do it tonight. Um, and that's the great thing, just as a player has, gets to pitch again in a few days, comedians get to get back on stage and that's what you, you know, you need to do. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure the audience can smell fear, you know, yeah. in a comedian as well. <laughs> Sometimes, and maybe even just uh, like they're phoning it in a little bit. I mean, if you get a routine down, I'm sure. And I've, I've seen comics and I feel like, yeah, they're really not connected to this material. They're throwing it at me because it's worked before and they'll get, they'll get some laughs. But, uh, you know, they're not quite connected to it. The one thing I do want to say about doing stand-up comedy is when you do it, if you do it, once you get off that stage and you've gotten those laughs, you feel invincible and you feel like if you do stand-up comedy, you can do anything. And I really do believe that. Even now, though, after doing it for how many million, million years, uh, when I see people walking into a club, I mean, I haven't seen that in three months, uh, I'm going to make these people laugh. I mean, there is that moment of the, even that irrational thing in your mind, like, I, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. What am I going to? So, you know, and then you do it and it, it usually works out. No, but I, and it's funny because I've told my daughter that on occasion when she gets intimidated by other life situations. And I said, you've been on stage in front of a bunch of strangers trying to make them laugh with a bright light on you. And you're worried about, you know, talking in front of a couple of people in, in an office somewhere. Like to me, once you've done that, you've overcome, you should have overcome most of those fears. So to that point, the show was called Middle Age Warriors. What's different for your perspective of being on stage and just how you approach comedy now being middle-aged as opposed to when you first started out. There has to be some differences, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, first, acknowledging that I'm middle-aged and really beyond. I don't know what the next thing after middle age is, but because <laughs> but, uh, I still see myself as the 27-year-old hanging out at the bar at the comic strip and Seinfeld and Paul Reiser and uh, Larry Miller, people like that. Uh, and I think Frankly, that's how I, we should keep seeing ourselves as. What's the point of how old am I now? Okay, that's what I'm going to feel like. Mm. There's no advantage <laughs> feeling like older age. I, I And it's not being delusional or anything. And I understand, you know, things change. And I'm talking about different things. And one of the things I, I think maybe the biggest change, Chris, is that I, I'm acknowledging my age more. I think in the business, and it's probably the same in in you know, and news to some extent too, and you know, um, that, you know, younger people and all that. But 
I'm not trying to be anything I'm not. I think more so now, I'm not afraid to make references that I think probably some of the 20 somethings aren't going to get. And on the podcast, especially, we're doing jokes. I mean, we're going back to, you know, the 50s, 60s. I mean, it's even things we weren't around. I just love talking about that. And I think feel more freedom just to say, okay. And in a way, uh, it's our time, I think, middle-aged people. You know, I mean, there was a period in the 50s, 60s, like, oh, they're old people. And they were probably 38, you know. Right. And, and sports, you know, and in sports, you are old earlier, unfortunately, and on, on, as athletes. But I think that, uh, you know, if you look at all the different fields, the people making the biggest impact and even in comedy, it's, you know, there's great 20 somethings. But the guys who are really doing it are, you know, certainly 40s, 50s and 60s. So I think I'm trying to acknowledge more, I guess, be more in touch with and be more honest about that, I guess. Who's the one person? that you haven't had a chance to meet either because they predeceased us or just haven't had the chance to cross paths with in comedy? Um, I mean, I've been lucky, you know, in terms of the greats. I mean, I, I mentioned Robert Klein, Shelley Berman, who was really, was one of the first comedians to be on the cover of Time Magazine. Mort Stahl, I met both of them and on a few occasions. I worked with Shelley Berman. I, I met Mort Stahl a few times. That to me, and that would be a reference too, Frankly, if I said that to comedy development people at Comedy Central, they wouldn't know who I was talking about, sadly. That's very true. So I'm so thankful. And maybe I have like Freddie Roman, you know, and as Rick alluded to earlier, I'm a member of the Friars Club and they're going through some difficult times. But I think I've Freddie Roman from Catskills on Broadway, and he once said, uh, I forgot the Yiddish expression, but it means old soul. And I am works, I, I do feel a connection to these older uh comedians and and um you know i would have loved to have met lenny bruce you know i mean i think i love his portrayal on marvelous mrs Maisel. yeah uh, the actor who plays him um you know so there's several people aren't around who would like to have met did you uh, ever come, ever but, come across um, green by the way i never met him i've, I've known people know him and, and yeah. he's like 90s and he's still going strong crazy. Um, oh sorry no okay. yeah and John Stewart, by the way, and I'm not saying this to brag, or well, why would I say it? But he did take my stand-up comedy workshop back in 1980. I remember that. And um, he was John Leibowitz. Wow. He's always been John Leibowitz, but that was, uh, and he's a great guy. And I've we've gotten you know, see him over the years, and he has a new film out that he wrote and directed. And he's always been someone I've admired greatly, and is really a sweet guy. Uh, so I'm so thankful that I do know. And Lewis Black is another comedian oh, uh, who I'm so thankful that I know and also is a sweet guy and great. So I'm just, I look at it, I'm thankful to people I have gotten to meet. Um, and that's, that's you know, comedy is very interesting. And, and maybe it's the same, you know, in the news business too and in radio. You know, I've had different <laughs> comedians I've met once mm. and had one great conversation. We worked in Jersey together one <laughs> night for $75 and had a great conversation over the burger that you were allowed to have before the show. And never again. And yet, if I'd see that person, we feel like we know each other. And there was a wonderful comedian who passed away not long ago, Kevin Meany. Uh, oh, yeah. Great, hilarious, and a great guy. And I met on a few occasions. We had one really long conversation. And I just, it, it resonated with me. And I went to his funeral because I, I want to be there because I felt we got to know each other. And comedy has a way of doing that, I think. Uh, it doesn't have to be a hundred times or over years. One great conversation. Because uh, you're a warrior in the same profession, and I think it really stays with you. So I'm grateful for all of that. 
Real quick, uh, because we're running a little bit out of time here on our Zoom cast, but uh, present day, let's hear your spin. What, what, do, you, what do you think about uh, as we approach another presidential election, Trump, Biden, any, any thoughts you'd like to share with us? Well, if, if we had another three hours, I'd be happy to definitely be touching the service. What I will say is address something that I'm sure you've heard people say, and this happened right after Trump was elected. Oh, it must be great for you comedians now that Trump is in <laughs> yeah. office. And in fact, very quickly, right, the night of the election, I was up till 4.30 in the morning. And look, I, to be honest, I was very unhappy that he won, you know, uh, put it mildly. But uh, CNBC World, and I've never turned anything down, but CNBC World emailed, would you want to be on the show tomorrow talking about why, not if, why Donald Trump's election is good for comedy? And I've never turned anything down, but I wrote back, I said, look, you know, Donald Trump, it's, it's a sad day for America. It's not a good day for comedy or for anybody. And uh, please keep me in mind in the future, but <laughs> I'm not gonna, I just can't. So it's been very, very hard as a political comedian, especially because these are pretty dark times. Now, again, I find the laughter, but I, just the thing with Donald Trump is, I think even people who support him would agree. How can you be any more absurd and comedic than the reality? You know, when Saturday Night Live does, uh, they did a sketch about Kanye West and Trump. I don't know if you remember the actual meeting. That was far more bizarre and absurd than anything you could do on Saturday Night Live. So that's the situation we're in, is that the reality is more absurd than any comedy. So you can't try to top it. You have to sort of go around it and find ways, which I try to do. But it's, it is challenging. And um, um, basically, all I'm saying, I can't wait, hopefully, for those, those challenging times to end uh, in a few months. I think uh, it'll be better for comedy and for, for everybody. But, uh, but yeah, it hasn't been easy strictly comedically uh, with that. And going forward, uh, I'm looking forward to it. It's, uh, we'll see. I mean, again, there's always comedy around it, even during difficult times. And uh, so I can't wait for the chance to get to do that material when I get the chance. And Scott has been gracious enough to be our guest. And because we've got so much more that we would like to talk about, I'm sure we're going to extend the open invitation because I also want you to come back and talk about Stand Up For Peace. Sure. and everything else that's going on in your life. Chris, thoughts? Well, Scott, it was a pleasure. This first time I got to meet you, so it was a pleasure. And I think there's a lot more we can certainly talk about in moving forward. And I'm sure you will have a lot more material politically and socially yeah. as we move forward in the days ahead. Absolutely. It's been so much fun talking to both of you and really uh, happy to come back uh, anytime. Thank you so much. What are you doing well, tomorrow? <laughs> I'm basically free. <laughs> Aren't we all? All right. Stay safe and stay well, Scott. Oh, thank you so much, Chris and Rick. Thanks so much. Scott, guys. Yeah, we'll be in touch. Let's let's see if we can make a date to get together. Maybe the three of us can have lunch or uh, something. Uh, I love that. Really. I mean, it's really, really great to meet you, Chris. And, uh, and, 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 and great to catch up again, Rick. And yeah, I'd love to get together with you guys. And We'll definitely make a plan. It would I would love to see you again, Scott. It's been too long, and I'm glad we were able to catch up. Yeah, my regards to Valerie, and, uh, and looking forward to seeing both of you as soon as we can. Nice All right, Bubba. Be good, pal. Take care. Okay, take see care, guys. Yeah, and the good news about it, Rick, is uh, as of this recording, uh, we can perhaps actually have that lunch together because uh, phase two began a couple of days ago here in New York and reopening things up. So maybe uh, we can meet him at Coney Island at Nathan's on the boardwalk, have a hot dog or something. That sounds like a lot of fun. Have, have you done the boardwalk at Coney Island? It's been a while. Uh, yeah. Probably the last time I did go to a cyclone game before I did the show. That's probably a good six 
you definitely have done it. I mean, and it's it's all coming back. It's going to be slow. And part of me is, you know, worried about the resurgence of COVID and then ultimately having to shut down everything again. But until that time, you know, let's, uh, let's keep our fingers crossed. Uh, Scott was a great guest. I really enjoyed having him. And it was great to speak with him again because it's been years. I think it'll be fun to have them as we go deeper uh, into the election as well. That's going to be Frank up, I'm sure, in the next few months. So to have his uh, voice, his slightly comedic, or maybe more than slightly comedic perspective, but sometimes that's reality. I think it'll be yeah. great to him, absolutely. And uh, I also would like uh, the opportunity to talk with him about what he does with Dean, uh, his Palestinian uh, cohort and they do stand up for peace they tour around the country or at least they used to tour around the country speaking to college audiences and whatnot and it's it's just fascinating it's great stuff anyway um thank you for everything you do chris i'm, I'm just gonna go out on a limb here um and ca catch you kind of by surprise and just say uh for anybody that's listening please know that chris Semino on my left though you can't see him is the <laughs> is the guy that's really uh, the, the force behind making this come together every week. And well, I just, I really appreciate it. No, Rick, I appreciate you very much. And I appreciate that very much, but it, it takes a team. And I think our perspectives, while very similar, we do have, you know, views that sometimes enhance the, the topics and the people we're interviewing. Also, we should mention, and I should mention, I don't know if we've actually ever said that wonderful mellifluous voice you hear introducing us at the beginning of the show, is Valerie, your wife. So uh, I always want to thank her for doing what she does for us. As well. Yeah, it's uh, thank you for saying that. And uh, it's a labor of love. She's really good at it. And uh, she's happy to do whatever we need. And as the show gets changed over time, I'm going to have to have her cut new liners for us. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm looking forward to that. All right. On that note, uh, I hope everybody stays safe, stays well until our next time. Sunshine always. Be good, feel good. And thank you. Have a great, safe stretch until we speak again. Hey, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes, preferably five stars, no begging. Uh, we're available also on your favorite directories, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can find us at Believe.com, that's B-L-E-A-V.com, and at Believe Podcasts. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.